Have you ever thought about what it takes to become famous? You know, something interesting that you can do is to compare what it, what it be, takes to become famous today to what it be, took to become famous 100 years ago, 1918. Who are the most well-known people? Well, you'll see that a lot of the ways you become famous are the same ways that you become famous now. The most well-known people are often the most powerful. In 1918, Woodrow Wilson was the president of the United States. And whether you liked him or not, you probably knew who he was. He oversaw America's involvement in the First World War. In 1918, there were sports. The, uh, the Boston Red Sox defeated the Chicago Cubs in the 1986, uh, 1918 World Series. They won in six games. And their victory was due in large part to an up-and-coming pitcher and slugger named George Ruth. That would be Babe Ruth. And the next year, he was traded to the Yankees, and the Red Sox wouldn't win the World Series again until 2004. 1918. Believe it or not, there were movies in 1918. The first Tarzan movie ever was released that year. Starring Elmo Lincoln. I'm not sure who that is, but people back then probably knew who he was. Well, what about today? In 2018, everyone still knows who the president is, whether or not you like him. <laughs> there are still people who are famous for their talent, whether it be athletic talent like LeBron James or supposed musical talent like Taylor Swift or even acting talent like Tom Hanks. That's all relatively the same, but there's a difference between 2018 and 1918. There's been an explosion of media, which means we have more people put in front of us all the time, which means that there are a lot more famous people, and a lot more people who are famous for reasons that aren't really discernible. So think of, I think the best example of this is the Kardashian family. The Kardashian family has been on TV for over 10 years. They've been on TV a really long time. And people love them. People follow their every move. And now they're sort of just famous for being famous. So what does it take to become famous? As we come to this portion of Mark, we come to the point where Jesus first appears in public. His public ministry begins. And in each scene we'll look at today, we'll see that it doesn't take long for Jesus' fame to spread. So before we dive in, we remember that the Gospel of Mark is indeed written by Mark, or John Mark, as he'll later be known in the New Testament. Now, John Mark was not an apostle, but he hung around with apostles. In fact, in 1 Peter, we read that he was with Peter while Peter was in Rome. And so he would have written this gospel, the gospel of Mark, based on Peter's testimony. And he wrote, he wrote this gospel to non-Jewish Christians in the city of Rome, roughly in, in the mid-50s. That's, that's 0050, the first century, a long time ago. So Mark, in his book, 
he gives a clear, succinct, action-packed, fast-paced picture of who Jesus is. So turn with me now in, in our new pew Bibles. If you have them in front of you, if you can't find one, we'll get someone to get you one. To page number 837. And look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we saw in the first week, two weeks ago, that before Jesus gets on the public scene in his ministry, Mark shows us who he is. He says that he's the son of God. He's recognized in, in this identity by his forerunner, John the Baptist. And he's also recognized in this identity when he's baptized. We see the Trinity coming together here. We see God the Father speaks and the Holy, God the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And he's proven in this identity as the Son of God as he endures Satan's attacks in the wilderness. Last week, we saw how Mark lays out sort of the mantra of Jesus' ministry, beginning in verses 14 and 15, chapter 1. And that mantra is primarily about preaching the gospel preaching that he has arrived and thus God's kingdom, his rule, is beginning and that he's come to deliver his people from their sins. So as Mark describes Jesus' general mission, he zooms in and notices Jesus' first encounter with his disciples on the shores of Galilee. And we get a picture of what it looks like to properly respond to Jesus. We get a picture of what Jesus says to do in response to him. To repent and believe. To turn from your sin and everything that's impeding you from following the Lord. And to turn to Christ. So we see these fishermen leave behind everything and follow this man who was unlike anyone they had ever met. But now, today, what happens when Jesus finally gets into the real world? Does he live up to all this hype? We're going to look at four different scenes or movements in Mark's presentation that sort of build on top of one another and give one resounding answer. Yes, he does. And right away. It's as if Mark is holding up Jesus like a diamond. And he turns that diamond so that the light will hit it at different angles so we can continually go ooh and ah and see how amazing this Jesus is. So as we go through all these scenes, we'll see that Jesus' fame spreads more and more, and there are different reasons for that. But I want, what I want us to see, what I think the main takeaway from this text should be, and I hope this sermon will be, is that the more you see of Jesus, the more amazed you should be. The more you see of Jesus, the more amazed you should be. So what do we see about Jesus in that first scene? Starting in verse 21. We see that Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. We're going to read this passage as we go along. So uh, let's start with verses 20, 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, 
for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So just like between verses 13 and 14, like we saw last week, Jesus is in the wilderness and Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee. There's an undisclosed time between verses 20 when he's on the shores of Galilee and 21 here. Nonetheless, we're told some things about what's going on. We're told who Jesus is with. Jesus is with his disciples. And Jesus is going to the place of a town called Capernaum. This would be sort of Jesus' home base. We read later on that this is where Simon and Andrew were from. So Jesus is with his disciples. He's in Capernaum. And where do they go? They go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, the day of rest, the day of public worship. And synagogues, think of, now there was one temple in Jerusalem. God's presence was there. And now there were many synagogues. In every city where there were at least 10 Jewish males, there would be a synagogue. And now if the synagogues, think of them as sort of an assembly hall or an auditorium. And on the Sabbath day, they would have different teachers come in and, and teach. And here it was Jesus' turn. So Jesus is in Capernaum on the Sabbath at the synagogue teaching. And that's consistent with his mission back in verse 14 that he would go into Galilee and preach the gospel. But notice that Mark, does he say what Jesus said here? No, he, he wants us to see something not about the teaching here. He wants, to, he wants us to notice something about the teacher. He wants us to notice something about the teacher. And, and how does he do that? How does Mark draw us out to see that? He describes, he describes the reaction of the people who heard him. What do they do? Look at verse 22. They, they are astonished at Jesus. And what, ex, what explains this reaction? Well, it, it's that Jesus taught as one who had authority. Jesus taught as one who had authority. Does that mean that Jesus just spoke really loudly and confidently and maybe uh, banged his fists on the table he was speaking in front of? What? I don't think it quite means that. And it means that he was teaching, as the hint it gives in the passage, he wasn't teaching like the scribes. He wasn't teaching like the scribes. The scribes were the only teachers that these people knew. They were in the line of Ezra. Remember the book of Ezra. They were experts in the Torah, God's law, the first five books of the Bible. And they gave binding interpretations of it. And they also served as moral guides. And at times, they served even as civil lawyers. The scribes were essential in a time when everyone couldn't read or write. This is the only teaching they knew. And the people were astonished because Jesus' teaching here is quantitatively different, qualitatively different than the scribes. It's unique. It's unlike anyone they had ever seen or heard So I wonder, friend, have you, have you considered Jesus in this same way? To be not just a, a normal teacher, not just to be another wise person, but to be unlike anyone who has ever lived. That Jesus has authority. And so for the questions for us, for finding our meaning, finding our purpose... 
go to the one who has this authority. We read on, verse 23. We think so far so good, right? You know, things are going pretty well. There's a good reaction. The people are starting to like Jesus. But that Sabbath day is not without testing. This one with new authority was about to be tested. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. So remember that the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus. Jesus announces that. And a natural outcome of the beginning of the kingdom of God is the beginning of the destruction of Satan's realm. So the Bible says later that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So when Jesus was on earth, it's a preview of what Jesus will do when he returns. So like Jesus here will cast out demons. Jesus here heals the sick. That's a preview of what his kingdom will look like when it comes in full. So whether it's in the wilderness when Jesus is enduring Satan's attacks or whether it's here when he casts out a demon, he shows his authority over Satan's realm. So in this specific instance, the unclean spirit, as Mark labels it, which is synonymous with with demon, the unclean spirit recognizes who Jesus is. He notices that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And he recognizes Jesus' power and even his mission to come and destroy. He speaks on behalf of all demons to destroy all of them. Now the people, notice the, the people in the synagogue, they're still wondering about who Jesus is. But the demons here know already. They have this other insight. They belong to the spiritual realm and they can see who Jesus actually is, that he is indeed the Son of God and he has this authority and power. And what does the book of James say? That the demons believe and yet they shudder. Don't be like the demons, friends. Don't recognize who Jesus is in your head and not believe him in your heart. So as a a bit of a side note here, the, the instances of demon possession in the Bible, they make us wonder what demon possession actually looks like and whether or not those in ancient times just called things they couldn't understand demon possession. Well, what we know, even from later in this passage, is that the people back then could discern between regular illness and something like demon possession. Further, what we know today is that there are evils in the world that that simply are beyond natural explanation. I I think of evils behind something like Auschwitz, the concentration camp. I think that's demonic, what's behind that. 
I think of how a mother could burn her children. That's something that's demonic. Now, I don't know what demon possession looks like. But I know that, that Satan walks around prowling like a lion, seeking to find whom he may devour. So it doesn't mean that we're paranoid and obsessed with demonic activity. But neither does it mean that we ignore it. C.S. Lewis captures this balance well in his introduction to his novel, The Screwtape Letters. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. But what's the point of this encounter? What's the point of Jesus casting out this demon? Is it to spark debate about demon possession? No. Read on in verse 27. Verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, the people recognize that whether it's their temporal human realm, Uh, the highest authority there in the scribes, or whether it's the spiritual realm, the, the powerful authority in the demons, that Jesus is greater than both of them. That Jesus has authority over both of them. So notice that, moreover, behind Jesus' teaching is power. Behind Jesus' teaching is power. There's no struggle when Jesus casts out this demon. There's no magic potion. Jesus doesn't invoke some kind of incantation. No, no, Jesus speaks and it happens. Does that remind you of anything? That his word is power. It's what happens when God speaks. It happens. So friends, the one who has this kind of authority, the one who has this kind of power is the one who is on our side. The Bible says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If the one who has this kind of authority is for us, what kind of comfort is that? Isn't that confidence when trials come? When attacks that even maybe from Satan come, we have one who is greater, who wraps us in his arms, who will protect us, who is for us. This one here with authority. This should give us hope that though on our own we may be weak, that he stands behind us. This one with authority and power. But also notice the one who has this kind of power and authority, shouldn't you listen to him? Would you dare approach this one however you want? Would you dare approach this one on your own terms? 
The Bible says that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. See that the same one who has the power to destroy demons and Satan himself has the power that is sobering to punish those who sin against him. The one who has that power also to destroy Satan has the power to deliver his captives. So reach out. Take his hand, friends. Now, turn from your sin and trust in him alone for your salvation. See this one who has this authority, this power. Jesus has authority. So the result of this incident at the synagogue in Capernaum is that Jesus goes viral. Verse 28 says that the word spreads around town and Jesus is starting to get famous. And the next scene to which Mark takes us happens the very same day. And we'll label this section, verses 29 to 34, we'll label this Jesus is healer. Jesus is healer. See that he leaves the synagogue and he doesn't take a break after teaching and casting out this demon. He goes to Simon and Andrew's house, which is also in Capernaum. Just read it. Let's pick it back up in verse 29. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So Jesus is in Simon and Andrew's house with all his disciples so far. Could you imagine what these guys were thinking? I mean, it wasn't too long ago that these four men were on the shores of Galilee doing what they had likely done since they were little boys, fishing. All of a sudden, Jesus calls them, and their lives are radically changed. He calls them, this one who is unlike anyone they have heard, and they see him teach. And then they go and see him cast out a demon. And now they're, they're alone with him in their house. And, and Jesus proves even to be powerful and compassionate when no one's looking. So even here, the disciples presumably assuming that Jesus could do something, they take Simon Peter's mother-in-law to him because she's sick. And guess what he does? He heals her. And even with simplicity, Mark can recount this powerful act that Jesus takes her by the hand and she's healed. It's not that she just seems healed. It's not that she just starts to feel better. No, she's fully healed. She gets up and she starts serving them. I think some of us are so familiar with the life of Jesus that his miracles have lost their luster. They've lost what we used to see them. It's like, it's like seeing a kid play with a toy that you used to love. And, and they just don't get it. Right? I, I've seen my, my cousin's kids 
come over and they play Nintendo. And they, like, what is this? They don't need, this, is, this doesn't have a screen on the controller. And how do you hold this? And these games are lame. They're like, no, you don't understand. You just got to slow down and, and see how great this game is. Here, you don't understand. You got to slow down and see that th this woman who was sick is just made well. But it's not just her. What, what happens next? Remember how it was said back in verse 28 that Jesus' fame spreads throughout Galilee after that synagogue encounter? Back in verse 28. Well, the Sabbath day is over now. The sun goes down and people can walk around. And so now this huge crowd gathers outside of Simon and Andrew's house. And it may, maybe it's like, uh, you'd imagine if Southwest General, if all the patients there were out of the building and outside in your front yard with their families, and they just knocked on your door expecting you to do something. So here is Jesus inside of Simon and Andrew's house, and Mark says the whole town, maybe that's hyperbole, but hundreds of people assuredly are, are gathered outside of this house, and Jesus heals, and Jesus casts out demons. And see, friends, the all-sufficiency of Christ here. That the healings, that the casting out of demons depend only on him. And you may ask, like, casting out demons, is physical healing still for today? But what we know for sure is that God is sovereign. God is almighty. God can do as he pleases. And God even tells us to pray with boldness, to pray for healing. But what we see here is that the miracles surrounding God's revelation of himself in his son, these miracles testify to his revelation's authenticity, that it's here, that it's arrived. Just like the rest of the New Testament, as the church is being built and spread, miracles accompany it to testify of his authenticity. And now we have that testimony encapsulated and written in his word. You know what we also know for sure? We know the all-sufficiency of Christ to heal the worst disease of all. We know the all-sufficiency of Christ to heal sin. We know that he became a curse for us on the cross. And he removes sin's guilt and sin's power. And we know that when we see him, we will sin no more. And not just that, we know that when we see him, there will be no more disease, there will be no more death, no more hurt, no more pain. We know that about our Jesus and this right here is just a taste. This mass healing is just a taste of what's to come. Hold on to that hope that Jesus is healer. So what happens next? We just concluded what was an insane day in the life of Jesus, right? Going from the synagogue, going to this house, and then all, this, all these people come 
outside of their house. And I couldn't imagine if every day of Jesus on earth was recorded in detail. The Gospel of John says, if that were the case, then the world's libraries couldn't contain what would be therein. Nonetheless, we read of what appears to be the next day in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. We may label these verses, Jesus is aware of his mission. Jesus is aware of his mission. Indeed, he understands that his mission is both inward and outward. Notice, he comes after a long and busy Sabbath. And Jesus gets up early the next day, and he does what? He prays. Can we learn anything from this? We learn that as much as Jesus was committed to people, he was committed to his relationship with the Father. And we'll see this in, in several other spots in, in this gospel and the other gospels, that Jesus was committed to prayer. He took time to pray. And Jesus knows how to keep this priority in the midst of busyness. Friends, if, if we think we're busy, this guy just healed hundreds of people the night before gathered outside of his house. And he gets up early the next morning to pray. So I don't know if you're a morning person, but certainly there's some time during the day when you can be without distraction, uh, when maybe people aren't around, and you could spend time with the Lord. And it, it's, if it's important for, enough for Jesus to do, how much more so for us? But the quiet doesn't appear to last that long, though. Simon Peter, in his enthusiastic self, leads the charge to find Jesus and tells him that everyone is looking for him. Jesus, you know, like, you just healed hundreds of people last night, right? Like, like other people want that now. So come on, people are looking for you. Let, let's go. But Jesus says, not right now. He knows his mission. Jesus doesn't go back into Capernaum, at least not yet. He goes on to the next towns because he has to preach. He says he must preach the gospel, the good news of himself. That is what drives Jesus' ministry. So here, even as we observe how Jesus' fame spreads throughout Capernaum and then throughout Galilee, we see that he knows his priorities. So then, uh, turning back to us, in light of, of Jesus' priorities, it's, it's reasonable for us as a church to ask ourselves, are we sufficiently inward and are we sufficiently outward? How are we doing with our relationship with the Lord? Are we pursuing him together? Are we growing in our love and knowledge of him? 
Can you see growth? Can you notice growth in others over long periods of time, over just faithfulness week in and week out? Are we regularly confessing our sins, seeking to remove our, ourselves from the world and from what's against God and, and to, vote, to devote ourselves to holiness before our Lord? Are we, just, are we taking stock of how we're doing? Are we, taking, are we examining our hearts? Friends, it is important to be sufficiently inward. But what about our relationship to others? Are we sufficiently outward focused? You know, Jesus poured himself out eventually completely by dying. He poured himself out for others. Friends, the inward pursuit should only fuel the outward pursuit. The more we dwell on Jesus, the more we spend time with God and in his word and in prayer, the more outward focused we should be. The more we see Jesus loves us this much, the more we should want to love others with that same love. So how can we consider the needs of those around us? Think of who you see every day. Think of the people you love. Think of the people you'll see tomorrow morning, the people you'll see throughout the week. Maybe it's strangers, maybe it's family, maybe it's friends. How do you consider their needs? How do you put them ahead of yourself? How do you reflect the love that Jesus has for you? One of the biggest ways you do this is by pointing others to Christ. And friends, we do that with our actions. We do that with our attitudes. But we most clearly do that with our words. With our words. If you want boldness for living for Christ, then you need to fuel up on the inward pursuit of God. You need to seek God with all your heart and that it would well up and burn up as a passion for other people. Jesus knows his mission. As we follow him, we follow the one who had the inward mission and the outward mission. So he goes throughout all of Galilee, and he preaches in their synagogues and displays his compassion and that the kingdom has arrived by casting out demons. And Mark closes out this section of the fame of Jesus spreading with an example of one of Jesus' acts as he went throughout Galilee. Notice verse 40. Jesus has compassion. Jesus has compassion. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Move with pity. He stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. The term leprosy could refer to, to various skin diseases, uh, including what we know today as leprosy, which is known as Hansen's disease. It's a debilitating skin disease. And just like 
back then, just like now, back then, an aversion to rashes and, and sores and, and lumps and pus is just natural to the human condition. Uh, and it was natural to ancient Israel. Leviticus 13 and 14 tells us that lepers had to be put outside of the camp. They had to be put outside of the camp, one, just for health reasons, so that the disease wouldn't spread. But it was also in part for a moral reason, because leprosy was often given as a punishment for sin. You see that in the case of of Miriam, uh, Moses' sister. So the point is, lepers weren't supposed to be around anybody. So then recognize the boldness, the humility, and the faith of this man coming to Jesus. I've tried to think of some kind of analogy. Maybe it's, maybe it's like a homeless man walking on the red carpet of the Academy Awards and trying to talk to a movie star. It's just like unthinkable. You, you, you don't do that. But it's, it's even more than that. Because Jesus wouldn't just be encouraged to, to, to distance himself from this man. Jesus would be required to distance himself from this man if he was to remain clean unless he too would become unclean and catch this leprosy. The leper knows all of this. He knows the risk. Yet he comes imploring Jesus. He comes kneeling before him. He comes desperate. And would we be more like this leper and see our utter unworthiness before the Lord and come desperate and begging for mercy knowing that he is able to make us clean. And friends, the leper doesn't ask, can you make me clean? The leper knows you can make me clean. He acknowledges Christ's ability and his perfect will. And Jesus does the unthinkable in response. Jesus does what a Jew in his day should never have done. He touches the leper. He touches him. The sinless son of God reaches out and touches this man with a vile disease. He's moved with pity and compassion. And what a great act of love and mercy. But is it not like God's grace to us? That though we were yet sinners, God reached out and died for us and touched us while we were yet vile in his sight. Jesus touches this man, yet the disease does not affect Jesus. No, Jesus has power over this disease. He's greater than the uncleanliness. And Jesus goes on. We pick up in verse 43. Verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests 
and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But he was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus tells the man that it is an urgent matter that you go and see the priest. We read on in Leviticus 14, getting healed from leprosy was only one half of the equation. You had to be recognized that you were healed by the priest. So Jesus here, he wants this man to be fully restored to society. Think of going from not being able to touch anyone to be able to to be around people again. Jesus wants this man's full restoration. But Jesus tells this man something else. He says not to tell anyone that he's healed him. That's a bit curious, isn't it? And we'll see Jesus do this again in Mark. But it relates to Jesus knowing his mission. He's not the Messiah who will be their warrior king, at least not yet. He wants people to understand who he is and to respond to him rightly. So he's not this sideshow healing man who just wants to draw crowds. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the suffering servant. Jesus wants people to understand him rightly, and he knows that people cannot understand him rightly until they see the cross and the empty tomb. And that's the same today. But even here, at the first appearances of Jesus in his ministry, Jesus is too great to be hidden. Indeed, look at, he, ironically, he trades places with a leper, right? The, the leper goes from being in desolate places and now being able to be in the city. And Jesus heals him, and his fame spreads to the point where he can't even be in the city anymore. He has to go out to the desolate places. Everyone's still coming to him. So from the synagogue goers to the demons to the sick to his disciples to Simon's mother-in-law to the oppressed to the leper, it's unmistakable here that there is greatness, that there is power, that there is authority. So then from the very beginning, whether it's in Jesus' authoritative teaching, his power over Satan's dominion, his power to heal sickness, or his love for the leper, Jesus simply cannot be hidden. He simply cannot be ignored. So see this one, friends, who has such authority and power and love and mercy and bring your burdens to him. Bring your sin to him. Bring your unworthiness to him. Lay it at his feet. This is the one who is faithful to heal and to forgive and to care for us. Trust in him. Follow him as we proclaim his glory. Let's pray. Great are you, O Lord. But even from the very beginning, we stand back in wonder and astonishment that this is who you are, that this is the one who has such power. 
And God, we are astonished that you are the one with such power that you care even for us. That though you may be almighty and powerful, yet at the same time you are loving and merciful and gracious and compassionate. And we are the beneficiaries of that. Lord, cause us to treasure you, to see you rightly. To hold on to the hope that if you are for us, then who will be against us? Stir in us, God, a passion to seek you and to be like you in seeking the good of others. For your glory, Lord, not ours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.